So I was down in Ghent, as us English-speaking people would say, uh, yesterday for a configuration management camp. I think this is the third time that I've been there. It's always a fun, uh, it's enjoyable. It's right after FOSDEM. And uh, so there's a lot of uh, people who go there from FOSDEM. And it is true to its name. Uh, it's, it's somewhat of a niche topic, but in our world, it's, it's a huge thing. It is about configuration and release management essentially. And then the, the, you know, the, the, the kind of things around that. So of course there's lots of Kubernetes talk and stuff like that. But the, uh, yesterday, the keynote was, uh, from Adam Jacob, you know, of chef fame. And he, he was finally giving a public view into like what his new company is called a system initiative or something. And basically I, I'll have to dig into this more. Uh, so this is just from seeing his talk. So who knows if it's accurate, but of course, you know, as as uh, as people who get interested and obsessed with a certain area, it's another configuration management, release management thing. And he went through the problems with uh, infrastructure as code. One of the things that he uh, he and his buddies in that area pioneered, of course, and not buddies. There was quite a lot of animosity. Uh, I don't know if you remember between the puppet and chef people. That was in retrospect. You know, what are you going to do? Uh, but. Essentially, his the, I think the main thing, the way that I, as a uh, uh, as an application developer, a Java developer, who stopped coding in tw- two thousand five, he was like, "What if configuration management, but object oriented, right?" And 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 what that means is he would call them models, but he was basically like, and and there's there's a there's a fun twist to this at the end, but what if we had models, which I would call objects, and the model was like you know your web server, <clears throat> and the thing with that is there's a there's an API or whatever, and you tell the web server to configure itself and install itself and set it up, and it's in charge of doing that. Instead of the way that we all we do this now is you tell it the exact settings to do. This is kind of like a Cloud Foundry way of thinking about stuff, right? In in the same way that you would go to Cloud Foundry and be like, I don't know, run this application. I gotta go eat something, right? And and like Cloud Foundry because it has strong opinions runs it in the way that it runs it. In the same way you would have a a database or a load balancer or presumably some router and uh, it has a model or an object and it's in charge of figuring out how to configure and and do itself and then the fun part or the f- the fun part is that part of what what the, they're thinking of is then you would you would just basically you can do bi-directional syncing of this model of this object back to staging and development so like in staging and development you build up this model that you want, a simulation, if you will. And then essentially what you say, it's kind of like a reconciliation thing in uh, uh, Kubernetes. You say like, now make production look like this model, right? And it kind of just synchronizes up that way. But the, 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 the fun follow-on from that is like, and then what you could also do is like, you could actually have a better single source of truth, which as he pointed out is always a lie. So it could be less of a lie that you, you have a good idea of what's in production because production, these models will sync back to your uh, your your development and staging thing, or as we would say, you remember this phrase from the Internet of Things era, uh, digital twins. You would basically mm-hmm. have digital twins that are, are bi-directionally syncing. Which, like, I'm a twin. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm you know, and I'm in digital-ish. Therefore, I am a digital twin. There you go. So, is that is that a viable model? Is it resilient for enterprises? Can you just uh, swap those twins out? Does does it work? No, sadly, we're not identical. I wish we were, because you know, I could you know fudge all my exams. Get him. He's he's in IT as well, so he could take half the mic, could take the other half. We combine our CVs. It'd be great, but no, yeah, sadly not. So we're not. When, when it, one of you wants to take some time off, you can just send the other one and be like, uh, yeah. yes, 
last week I sent exactly. that out. It'd be yeah. great, wouldn't it? I'd suddenly have a whole new skill set I could call on. It'd be far more interesting on these podcasts if every week I came on with a different set of knowledge and you never knew whether it was me or my brother. <laughs> that would be fun. That would be a fun game we could play at the end. Which, which, which one is it? Exactly. Ed 1 or Ed 2? <laughs> but sadly, we're not identical, so it would be very obvious. Uh, I'm sure he's quicker and he's smarter than me. Anyway, I, I have to say on that conference thing, I don't get that. I'm sure it's just the way they'd explain or something, but you know, the whole, so hey, I'm like, so if it's just sort of almost object oriented, isn't that really what Pulumi is trying to do, right? In a code of your choice or, you know, language of your choice, make it more structured and everything. And the whole syncing things, well, again, shouldn't that be what infrastructure's code lets us do anyway? It feels yeah, like one of those, yeah. I'm sure there is something clever in there and someone explain it in more length and go, in this scenario, this would work. Oh, totally. But on the surface, I'm like, I. I feel like we should do all that with what we've got. <laughs> right, right, right. And, 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 you know, to that point, like, I think uh, also, I mean, I mean, it all seemed cool to me, right? Like that, that seemed like uh, a great approach. And then also kind of to your point, it all comes down to the actual implementation, right? Like, like as, and, and then also, I don't know what they call this nowadays, but like, so the word drivers is what I would use for the following. It's like, whether you're using like puppet or chef, or like Kubernetes or whatever, I vaguely know what Pulumi is, or the system initiative thing, eventually there's some code that like connects to a Cisco router and configures it, right? And, and you're kind of like, that never gets better, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, like that only gets better. And, and, and Adam started off by looking at how you uh, configure SendMail, right? And there's two ways that used to configure SendMail. And one of them looks horrendous. And the other one, is less horrendous, right? It's just some nonsense from the Unix era, right? And it's like, you know, if you were to manually type this stuff in, it's it's almost as bad as like the command line for like running the JVM. It's just like, I, I don't know what's going on here, right? Capital X, give up. Uh, and like, so like, like all, all, all of, <laughs> yeah, all, all of this, this fancy configuration stuff, as Adam also covered, is just sort of like, you know, a nice UI and model on top of like some horrendous stuff underneath. So, but my point being that like, well, maybe it's better to hide the end user. This is a lot of what Kubernetes wants to do. Like there's no reason for everyone to have to know this horrendous configuration. We should just let the experts do it, let alone going to the drivers thing, the actual manufacturers of the hardware and the software, right? So the uh, the Cisco people should make the drivers for how to configure stuff, which might conflict with their desire to sell you stuff to do it easily for you, which is whatever. That's 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 on the business side, but I think I think this stuff always comes down to like uh, it has to be a good idea, which is why you spend the most time going over the idea, and then over multiple years you have to build up a community or an ecosystem to unopen source it of people who have all these drivers and and it just works, which is cool. They should do that. It'd be great. It, it, it'd be, uh, be fun. And, and then also, uh, this is, this is uh, what always, I think, happens to me at Configuration Management Camp. Uh, you, it's, it's, at a, it's like at a, a, a university, and they have like a university cafeteria with university-quality food, which is great. Uh, and uh, so I was sitting there, and I ran into our old friend Colin Humphreys, who used to work here and at Cloud Credo. And then we spent like, uh, me, me and his homies spent like three hours talking instead of attending the conference. So that it was, it was fun to talk with him. He's the best uh, way to do things. Yeah, he's a delightful person. Well, 
Yeah, yeah. And, and I, your, your lecture on here and there a uni or something because you're just chatting and actually it's more useful than the lectures. Yeah, yeah. It was nice to catch up on stuff and and uh, understand what his company is up to. I actually need to see what his uh, what his his new startup. I need to see a demo of it before I fully connect the dots because it, it made sense. But I need to see what uh, what's what's the proof in the pudding, as as they say. And uh, what I, what I found out is that yeah, fun fact about Colin. I think he is a, a diehard uh, uh, Cartesian. I think he kind of laid that out there at the end, and he's really into Descartes and the Cartesian system uh, of existence. But then we were told that they were closing the cafeteria and we had to leave. And as someone joked as we were walking out the door, oh, the staff heard uh, someone talking about Descartes, and they were like, all right, it's over. You got to leave now. <laughs> <laughs> and hey, I remember very recently, Colin was on the hunt for podcasts to listen to. Mm. Did you manage to secure his listenership so he can move up to? No, two? no. However, I did talk to several other people who uh, I, I talked about all the various the podcasts, the, the Cote podcast universe, too. So maybe we'll have some some new listeners. That, that would be good. I'll, ha I'll have to tell him that. Because I wanted to follow up on, uh, you know, the opposite of, of Descartes in, uh, in that era of philosophy is this guy Barclay, who uh, he had an extensive proof that we are all just an idea in uh, the Western God's mind. Uh, there's actually, it's very, it's hard to know if there's actual physical reality, but we can know that we are a, a free-willed, independently operating, at least, idea. So he, he was like right there going towards like uh, Buddhism and Hinduism. And then he's like, nope, I'm going to take the left turn. Just sort of veered off there back, back to Europe. Uh, but I'll have to send some Barkley to him, see what, he, see what he makes of that. That'll be fun. Well, speaking of, see what you make of that. The, uh, the CNCF, uh, they released uh, their most recent survey about the Kubernetes world. And it's always fun. You know, we do a, a yearly survey. I, I, I was looking over the questions for our 2023 State of Kubernetes survey, which... We'll probably publish, I'm guessing if it's like last year, sometime in December. I don't know. It depends on what we do. But uh, that's always fun to look at. But the uh, the CNCF survey, it had some interesting findings in it. Now, I, I think I, it's fair to say that the three of us, we didn't go to GitHub and download the raw data to do extensive analysis of it. We should load that up into chat GPT maybe and ask it to do it. But in just reading the survey. now, don't we? Oh, well, I actually signed up for the plus thing, and I would love to pay for it just to get new features. We'll, we'll I'll see send you more requests. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But uh, yeah, there's a few interesting things in there. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll start with one, uh, which, which I think is, 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 uh, is, I don't know, the thing that I care the most about is basically my whole, my whole theory of how you improve during doing software, you know with the big, the big double dagger footnote of like, you know, this applies 90% of the time and there's exceptions, blah, blah, blah. Uh, like, is that basically the way you improve software is to uh, give developers to make their releases uh, base is weekly. Maybe daily is fine, but like that seems a little too much. But if you could do weekly releases, what that means as a software developer is that you can uh, basically, uh, put a feedback loop in place to learn if the features, the changes you're making to the software are making things better or worse. And then every week you can course correct as opposed to every month, every three months, every six months, every 12 months or whatever, right? And that's the way that you can rapidly uh, improve your software. And then even find out what problems you're solving 
and verify that uh, in the first place. So I'm always interested in how quickly something like a Kubernetes allows people to release software. And it looks like, to greatly summarize it, because the wording for this stuff, they do it a little weird in the CNCF survey, but people who use, who have more uh, applications in production on Kubernetes, they are, they are able to get even closer to doing daily releases and weekly releases. And in fact, uh, this is the weird wording that they use. Instead of just a direct percentage, they use these categories of uh, if nearly all of your applications run on Kubernetes in production, you see basically like an almost 10% rise in uh, the number of people who can release multiple times a day, which is like releasing multiple times a day is a little nutty, uh, but whatever. Uh, but, it, you know, it means that you can release more frequently. Now, maybe in the detailed stuff, hopefully they did define what nearly all means. And maybe in the details, there's more precision there. But that's a, that's a positive finding that uh, it, it actually helps people out. How about, did, uh, was there anything interesting in your, your skimming of this summary that the, the two of you liked? How about, how about you, Ben? Yeah, I did. I saw something around challenges. So they'd asked people responding to the survey, what are the biggest challenges that you report in uh, both using and deploying containers and getting the most out of that new ecosystem around cloud native? And it seems that the most significant barrier that folks were reporting back was the ability to get the right training and have the right skills was number mm. one and number two was security and having confidence that the code that they're releasing that they're, that they're running on the platform is secure and hasn't exposed them to some bad actor in some in some way so i thought that was very interesting because they're two areas that we have in the tanzu application platform that i work on that that we really care about is the idea of enabling folks to uh, be able to you know understand what it is they're doing with the platform uh, in the form of uh, learning centers that you can that you can write and you can use to uh, basically take hands-on labs and 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 uh, learn more about the platform that you're using on a daily basis. And of course, security, which is something that the uh, secure software supply chains is really important uh, in allowing you to deliver a more sort of secure footing for all the containers that you run, making sure that they've all got an S-bomb, that you know when they were last checked and you know what dependencies they have and what vulnerabilities are in there. Just knowing is part of the answer you know <laughs> it's not just um correcting any issues that you have but just knowing that you have issues across what might be hundreds or thousands of containers mm. is, a, is a big deal so it was really interesting to see those two things picked out as the clear top challenges that folks are reporting back because it echoes with what we hear from customers all the time yeah it's always good to validate your uh, your business <laughs> <laughs> which, which, no, and, and I think, you know, we see, we see that in our own surveys, right? Like those are the top two things every year and they trade places every now and then. But I think, I think that is, uh, that is consistent. And like, you know, you're saying we have uh Kube Academy, kube.academy you can go to, and I think you can even do some courses without even registering. And then after that you register, I think they're, they're basically all free if I remember, or maybe not basically, maybe specifically, I forget. That's how good of an employee I am. And, yeah, and uh, but to, well, and to flip that on his head a little bit, is it also um, a signal that actually it's 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 too it's too complex? Like like this this ecosystem works, but it's very complex. Yeah, and yeah. 
that might be resulting in folks feeling like they can't find people who've got the right skill sets. They don't have the right skill sets themselves. They, they struggle to keep up maybe with the pace because we all know that the pace is absolutely crazy around the CNCF and all the different projects and the maturity levels and the, uh, you know, the speed that they iterate. So um, maybe it's also a signal that there's an, you know, there's an underlying uh, issue around just the, the sheer complexity of the whole thing. And and if you try and, um, it, you know, if your approach to that complexity is to try and master it, maybe that is quite difficult, actually. And, and maybe that's worth reconsidering whether or not you really need to be a master of all of it or whether you can, um, you know, use some, extra tools maybe to uh, to give you some uh, high level abstractions yeah no i i think i think that's uh that's exactly right like you're 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 making me think that like analogously like kubernetes in the, is in the era of uh when linux was basically like you had to make your own distro as as an end user like i don't i i wasn't a linux person back then but i imagine there was a point before before you know I don't know, there were like five or six distros in the late 90s. And like, you know, you could choose one of those distros or you could assemble your own and you'd have to make the choices to integrate it. And like, I bet there were similar surveys where they're like, whoa, these things are confusing. Probably sponsored by the incumbent operating system vendors. But, you know, <laughs> it, it was it was no doubt an equally like uh, confusing thing at that point until it all consolidated. And uh, as, as our old friend uh, uh, Kubernetes Joe used to like to say, it became boring. Uh, and and it was uh, there, there were there were skills in there. You're also reminding me. I don't know if if uh, when y'all were growing up in your neck of the woods, you you had the GI Joe cartoons, but they had these little educational moments every now and then. And the motto of the educational moment was uh, "Knowing is half the battle," which which I I, I think you're going knowledge is uh, is power. I don't know what you, what the other half is. Maybe <laughs> gu maybe guile or something. But uh, knowing the other half is the other half. <laughs> yeah, I, I've heard the phrase. I, I never knew where it came from or whether they've in turn pinched it from somebody else. Yeah. So yeah. one of the things I saw, actually, in fact, I say I saw like I prepped. I didn't. I'm looking at it right now. Um, but it's an interesting one. And in, again, in this survey, that it says, so I haven't seen quite how they define it. But the CNCF end users are more advanced in their adoption and use of Kubernetes and are more likely to maintain a larger number of clusters, essentially which I find fascinating in that, that discussion we just had. So we're saying, you know, there is undoubtedly a ton of complexity in there. Um, but a bit of me would think, so the, the non-end users, I assume are sort of vendors and consultancies and that kind of thing, um, you would like to think that they were leading this charge in lots of ways. Mm. And in terms of expertise, if they're saying this is really complex, we can help you, they would be the more advanced set. But this seems to be implying it's the opposite that the end users, the people on the coalface are the guys who know all this better and are using it more in production and so on, and everyone else is catching up, um, which, you know, I'm sure is not the case for us. But it's, it's a fascinating, I, I'm curious how they, what that data is and, you know, what that means, I guess, it just feels like an anti-intuitive to me. I remember covering OpenStack and it felt often like that was sort of vendor-led. Everyone was out right. there saying, we've got all this stuff, we've got it all working, you need us to get it going because it's complex and everyone else was sort of going, oh, let's have a look, let's do that. But this seems to be the other way around. That, that's interesting. You know, in, in the OpenStack world, which, which I remember well, it's probably because most of the people involved in that were looking to build their own public cloud. They were, they were as, as people like to say, drinking their own champagne or eating their own dog food. And so there, there were practitioners there. Whereas I wonder if you looked at 
all of the vendors in the Kubernetes space if they're striving to like run their own Kubernetes stuff. I don't know. That that would be and then and then I guess the other way you would run that is to say, are there significant contributions from the three major public clouds where where Kubernetes runs? I, I would assume there is. They're probably nice about open source stuff. But it does remind me of another extensive conversation I had about like uh with with uh actually one of our, our coworkers at configuration management camp where like I was trying to get down to like what's the experience of like installing Kubernetes? Because like a lot of the discussion around Kubernetes stuff always assume, assumes Kubernetes has been installed already or that like, you know, your your IaaS has been laid down and, and is easy or or is up and running. But it seems like, you know, you get in this area where like uh, I need a Kubernetes to install a Kubernetes and then like you got to install that first one. But it seemed like there were good solutions, but it was uh, it was the old thing that my old friend Andrew Schaefer used to say, who who in, who installs the cloud, uh, you know, who installs the installer? Uh, as it were, which which is a little tedious to think about. It can be, <laughs> in indeed. Which you know that raises the the last thing that I I was going to uh, highlight from it, and that is that uh, there was an interesting uh, conver conversation in the survey of what they called auxiliary workloads, which is sort of exactly what I was getting to is that if you were to separate out Kubernetes usage into applications. So the actual software that people are using that are just running on Kubernetes. And then the stuff you run in Kubernetes that helps you build those applications. Like for example, if you are running a, an internal developer platform like Backstage, which runs on Kubernetes, as, as I recall, or you're using like your, your SBOM generation thing, which also runs on Kubernetes. Like there's all these things that people run on Kubernetes as, as the, uh, the survey was trying to metaphorize as an operating system. You know, counting that up, it looked like 63% of the workloads that people run on Kubernetes were the auxiliary ones, these ones that they use to support building and, and governing and, and maybe even managing the actual applications, whereas 37% of them were the actual applications. And, and again, in the summary, they didn't distinguish between production versus in staging and development, but whatever. It doesn't matter for this point. But it, it got me, uh, one, that's an interesting observation, right? Because it is like, that's something I've been curious about is like uh, running running your support stuff in your target deployment environment. Like, I guess I guess you you would probably remember this, Ben. Like, if I mean, you run your Java build tools usually in Java, but you don't necessarily run all of your development process in an app server. Or you could, I guess, but it's just usually like a separate environment. Your runtime environment is sometimes separate in, in the Java world or, or it used to be or not. I don't know. There's almost like it's hard to wrap my head around like the same thing that I deploy to production is the thing that I run all my development stack on. But that appears to be the case in the Kubernetes world, I, I guess. Pause for commentary. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, I don't know. It's I. I can't. I. I've got to be honest. I. Can't, I don't. Not sure. I follow exactly um, the 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 train of thought there. But yeah, I do. I, you know. Yes, I do remember um, working quite a lot on things like uh, WebSphere and WebLogic and those sorts of application servers back in the day. And yes, everything build wise, you know, was all taken care of 
far away from production until you had this golden jar that you're exactly. working on for for months and months and months, you know, and here it is boiled down into the golden jar. And then someone in the middle of the night had to tentatively apply that to uh, production. There you go. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, But it was it was alone. You know, it was this jar on its own. It didn't contain within it all the tests and all the other stuff that had gone on before that golden jar was produced. It was just the binary, just the one thing. Totally. No, no, that's exactly it. It, You you uh, you deconfused my monologue there. You, uh, you figured it out. See uh, the golden jar. We should. We should. Yeah. It's a yes. Shame. The golden jar is no longer popular. You you don't want a golden jar in your and, cupboard anymore. And and so this got me thinking about like you know I uh, I have since retired from doing strategy business strategy at companies I work at. I ju- I just talk about things. But I was thinking, if this is the case, then one way you could uh, distinguish between like uh, you know you could try to differentiate as a Kubernetes vendor or service, you know, someone providing, someone selling Kubernetes basically, is you could do your pricing based on production versus development. Because I would assume, I don't know if this is the case, but like there is a scenario that like as someone who's selling running Kubernetes, you just charge for whatever it's used for. You don't care what type of workload is on it. You just meter that it's running and you charge for that. Versus you could say like, oh, we're only gonna charge you for production workloads. like. For development, it's all free. Do whatever you want, right? And then effectively, because there is, you know, using this survey, let's round up the numbers around. We'll make them rounded. You know, 40% of your workloads run in production, and then let's say 60% run uh, in development. Then you're only paying for 40% of your Kubernetes usage, which would be a big discount. But uh, I don't know. I don't know what the public clouds do. But it seems like if you're a pure software vendor, it's just like that's money you could have made, but you're not actually losing money because you don't have to pay for anything, right? Hence the great nature and margins on software. Whereas if you're uh, actually someone running the Kubernetes, that's money that you are losing because you actually have to pay to run that stuff that you then are not recouping. But I don't know, maybe everyone already does that. But that's, uh, we'll, we'll kick that over to the, uh, the strategy groups who are thinking about these things. Well, look, as you said, I'm a longtime Java Enterprise uh, user from back in the day. And uh, any discussion about pricing brings all those folks out in hives. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we have to rely on Oracle for our pricing. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, <laughs> which yeah. usually means pain uh, at some point, or you know, cash pain, should we say? But uh, yeah, they they know how to monetize for for real. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yep. I was just looking. Interestingly, I found a data point that agrees. So it's purely by chance, but that issue around sort of, you know, auxiliary applications or whatever they termed it as. I was like, I remember seeing something similar to that recently and being either a bit surprised and also kind of not. I A bit of me thinks, you know, 30% of your workloads are the actual stuff you care about. And another yeah. 63% are auxiliary. You know, that's your sort of back-end system stuff that you need to do to get that third running. Um, and it was actually, who was this one? 451 Research had one, I couldn't tell you when, a month or two ago. Um, and they came up with a very, very similar figure. So they had 65.2% in this year. They've got predictions. Going so forward. precise. Internal operations. Well, exactly. I'm, I'm sure they counted every single one everywhere. Um, but, you know, it ends up being a very similar figure of internal stuff versus customer facing, in their case, functions or data processing. Kind oh, yeah. Of stuff. Huh. Well, um, you'll have to send that to me. I'll have to put it in my newsletter, available at newsletter.cotate.io. Yeah, I imagine it's a gated asset, but you never know. It might not be. It might be out there. Um, 
interesting that 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 higher proportion it reminds me actually i'll i'll pimp your newsletter here Kose, saying you know the whole kubernetes experiment over seven years all this effort all this engineering all this complexity and then a third of the stuff running on is actually what you want still mm. undeniably a good idea i'd say but it's a it's definitely food for thought, isn't it? How much engineering you have to put in just to run those 30% of apps you want. Yeah, yeah. To get, to get the, uh, you know, the new infrastructure takes many years and uh, mm. sorting out. But yes, yeah, that, you know, if people are interested, they should go. The, uh, this was an issue I had, an issue. I call them episodes. That's what I call them. But this was, this was a, a write-up I had last week where I was just, uh, I think I, what, what happened? I read a Stephen O'Grady thing from 2016 where he was speculating about which way Paz is going to go. And it was, uh, you know, I was thinking like, oh, yeah, well, the way it went was nowhere because we spent the last seven years on Kubernetes and now we're ready to join the path back up. So there was my extended moping about that. But if you uh, if you go check out my newsletter, you can you can read that. So thanks for bringing that up. That was great. That was a good segue, wasn't it? There you go. I'm getting but better. Doesn't it, doesn't it make a lot of sense, though? Because a, a lot of what we've been trying to do for years and years is reuse. You know, the idea of reuse, let's reuse something because it's cheaper to reuse it and to keep reinventing the wheel, right? If we're running development workloads and auxiliary workloads on Kubernetes, we're just reusing Kubernetes, right? So yeah. yeah. Where's the big yeah. deal? I, no, no, I... No, I think I think I agree with you. It does make sense. It goes back to the uh, the champagne dogging fooding uh, that we were talking about earlier. <laughs> that like if uh, if you if you're if your champagne flavored dog food like is if you're using it yourself in development, you're probably more likely to uh, kind of understand production and make it work well there. So it's yep. probably a good that, move. That has a very different meaning in the UK, but we'll leave that there. Uh, instead, let's turn our minds to a little bit later on in this survey, if I can, uh, where it talks about um, the, the combination of data center and cloud uh, architecture by organization size, right? So uh, yes. how big is your organization size? And then how have you sort of architected things? And no surprise here that in the smallest group where the organization has maybe one, 200 employees, um, there's a small amount of hybrid cloud use and there's a large amount of public cloud and uh, public cloud only. So, so mm. that's like the biggest group, if you like. I'm on public cloud and I only use public cloud is kind of like a big group. Whereas if you get to the 1,000 to 10,000 range, hybrid cloud is now 63%. So almost everybody has hybrid cloud in the 1,000 to more. Anyone yeah. more than a thousand. I find that interesting because I I think back to a, a, a retailer example from the UK recently. This retailer came out and said, "Oh, we're going to put all of our workloads on one particular public cloud." And I was left thinking, like, why? Why would you do that these days? That's crazy. <laughs> because you've basically made a huge public statement that you're locked into one particular vendor. They know they've got you because, you know, you're not going to go back on your public statements very easily. And you've lost out on, you know, the ability to enter some competition into the pricing to be able to, you know, move your workloads around to where they've got the better services. You know, maybe you want ChatGPT because it's on Microsoft and maybe you want, you know, uh, databases or on Google or whatever. The inability to be able to move around seems absolutely crazy to me. And then within a month or so, CTO's gone. <laughs> so it's like, 
this is not if you're not in the hybrid space over a certain size you should be asking yourself why not i think because yeah. it doesn't make a lot of business sense to be exclusive to one particular public cloud vendor over a certain size there's always going to be acquisitions you're always going to be merging with other companies you're never going to be able to control that the way that you think you can and um it reduces your choice so why would you do that yeah yeah no that's a good case for uh realizing that you always have heterogeneous it or at least should be open to that you know, if only because of like you're saying the acquisition thing, right? Like that's there's there's different. I I was I was in a uh, like at one of these dinners uh, uh, I go to every now and then recently, and there there was there were the two sides of that where there was someone at a at a really big uh, company, mostly mostly European uh, company, and they were saying they had moved all of their stuff to Google Cloud except desktop management, which sort of like well that makes sense, right? Like you know you got to have your I forget what Microsoft's desktop management thing is called nowadays, but you know that you just do that. And uh, and then there was someone else who said, "Oh, they 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 were kind of like a conglomerate company. They acquired a lot of companies, and they said, yeah, every time we acquire a company, we basically just figure out if we leave them alone or if we move them to our you know our thing, depending on how they're doing. And um, I don't know, some somewhere, it seems like the larger the company, the more likely uh, you sort of do both of those." Or not? Who knows? Like on the other hand, I, I was uh, while waiting for the long line of the delicious university Flemish food. Uh, like I was talking with some uh, some some Dutch people about how uh, why don't these why do these companies keep doing things sixty different ways <laughs> and, and not and not just consolidate to best practices? But I, I I think Ben, you would advocate for you know five at most different ways, not not sixty different ways of doing it. But it you know. Or whatever. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But whatever I, whatever you aim for is probably not what you end up with. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I, I have uh, uh, I have my next meeting is starting up here, as you can hear. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting I'm getting kicked out of the room as yeah. as yeah, they pressing used to say deadlines in in the in the physical world. Uh, but I think you know I think as I I always enjoy a survey. And the last thing that I'll go over this is this is where when it comes to technologies used, I should really go dig into the uh, the extended data. But it looks like it looks like Simon Wardley's dreams uh, from seven or eight years ago that that next year is going to be the year of serverless. Uh, looks like it's increasing because I think I think when you look at the technologies people use uh, in twenty twenty. Thirty percent of people reported using, you know, uh, serverless slash FAS function as a service, and now it's up to fifty-three percent. So that is a huge growth amount uh, for people using serverless stuff. So finally, uh, you know, the uh, those which way does it go? I think a Wardley map, the good stuff is on the right side, if if I mm -hmm. remember. I forget which. I mean, here's here's a, a tip. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, here's a tip. At least in the Western world, the good stuff is always on the right in a chart. If you find yourself making a chart the other way, you're doing it wrong. You're going to confuse people. But, you know, maybe maybe the right side of the Wardley charts uh, will finally be cool. Although I guess that would be in the middle and, and the, the, the left, because his point would be these are commodity things that you should not worry about specializing. And that's serverless is kind of the bridge between serverless is kind of like his value line. Anyways, I should probably not speculate uh, too much because I haven't read his stuff in a long time. But serverless has gained in popularity in the uh, the Kubernetes world, it looks like. Well, yeah, and uh, our listener, 
Anchor uh, also uh, prompts us to uh, mention as well that uh, Wasm is mentioned in this survey too, isn't it? There's a there's a definite uh, sort of eye on the horizon at what technologies might come next, um, not only in the sort of serverless space, but generally in the sort of container space. And, um, and, and Wasm is, is mentioned in this survey and seems to be uh, maturing as a technology that could offer um, some new benefits uh, after containers or, you know, post in a post container world, I guess. Now, now in true, I figured out this is, this is, uh, as they say, our, our primary bit here in the Tanzu Talk news podcast. Does it, does any of us actually know what that is? The, the Wasm stuff, I am getting increasingly intrigued by it. And I think I'll, I'll go off and do a little bit more digging on that. But yeah, I, I, I understand that, you know, how uh, the, the sort of container view of the world is that you share a kernel and you share certain things from the sort mm. of uh, Linux un, uh, underpinnings, but then each container runs in its own um, secured sort of sandbox, if you like, where the, mm -hmm. where the actual code is. Uh, it, it's kind of like the, the next level up from that where actually you don't need it. I don't think you need a kernel anymore. So you can start to get much slimmer, much uh, faster startup times and other sorts of, uh, benefits from that but uh, i'm speaking from a point of huge ignorance so i need to go and have a have a, a deeper look at that but it is very intriguing that it's coming up time and time again in, in more and more surveys as uh the technology to watch oh, it, it sounds like it sounds like uh unikernels except comprehensible uh which maybe maybe that would be yeah. interesting I'm, uh, I'm like ben i've read a few articles on it and it just has not sunk in what the difference is in my head i still think it's another redo of Java in a way, as in Java was that, you know, write once, run anywhere. And that was the JVM and everything. And I read about Wasm and it sounds the same because I'm not a developer. Um, mm. And it just sounds like, well, we'll do, you know, you can do away with Kubernetes. You won't need it. You'll run everything in Wasm. Uh, someone put out a good tweet, probably Kelsey, who knows, um, yeah. along those sort of lines saying, you know, it felt again like that matrix thing of once you use it, you won't need to dodge bullets philosophy. Um, but I'm amazed by those numbers, actually, you know, that they're showing here of sort of 37% of organizations, I think, end user organizations saying they have already deployed an application using WebAssembly, whereas it feels just like a, a lot of chatter, but not much on the ground. And maybe that's not the case. Well, they do say that, you know, m many are still testing the water. So of that 37%, it might be one-offs, you know, where, where someone's try sort of trying something out and trying to get more familiar with the technology. And, and that makes a lot of sense. I think it is still very early days. How do you deploy it? Anyone know? Is there a, you know, a Docker desktop of Wasm style thing that you say, I download Docker, this, I run it. Docker desktop does now do wasm yeah it was added in the last couple of months to docker desktop so it is a possibility yeah. you can do it that way i can join mm. the 37 percent fairly quickly now and uh, i think i can hear someone who's just deployed a wasm and it's not gone <laughs> quite according to plan that's right that's right yeah yeah very true well did, did i did i go over my standard debbie downer thing about the demographics for for the cncf survey i forget if, no if do I your debbie that. downer What's well to, to your to your point ed like I, I always like, you know, the, the, it looks like, uh, in, in the, the methodology, if you read through it, they've actually got, tried to get a wider representation of just people who would gleefully, you know, respond to the newsletters and the Twitter account, which is, you know, the primary way they recruit the people who uh, answer these questions. But they also went out and scanned, they partner up with Dynatrace and Datadog, 
to uh, as they as they uh, say get the anonymized data about what's running uh, uh, out there. And uh, I think we covered the Dynatrace stuff uh, last week. Uh, and so you do have that, you know, you're kind of expanding beyond like the self-identifying CNCF community people. And it looks like they also use a, a third agency to recruit some people outside of uh, outside of their own thing. However, like it's it's always good to keep in mind that like even though Kubernetes has like definitely like mind share and people are interested in it, like, you know, to use um, a recent Gartner estimate, only only five percent of terrestrial workloads run on Kubernetes, right? So there's still like, of the people, you know, all of the applications out there, there's still a very small amount running in Kubernetes. So to say that like 37% of applicate, you know, of people using Kubernetes use any technology is still a very small thing, which is not to say it's bad. It's just like adds some context to it. But as been mentioned, I think we need to go debug a few deploys. Uh, we haven't figured that out yet. The, the alarms are going off there, and uh, we've got to handle that stuff. So as always, this has been Tanzu Talk. If you want to get the, 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 the show notes for this episode, see how to subscribe, all of that, you can go to uh, tanzutalk.com, and uh, we'll have some links to things we mentioned and other stuff. And with that, we'll see everyone next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye.